Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Think of the deindustrialization in the north of England in the 80s, for example, and the current deindustrialization of Appalachia in the United States, which, among many other factors, has fueled the rise of populism in that country, with dire consequences for the future of democracy. In the case of climate change and the urgent transition to sustainability, not having a transition will make us all losers. But this does not mean we should not try to avoid or minimize the negative impacts of the transition on vulnerable groups. It's all about the fair distribution of the benefits, but also the burdens of our human association. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition. That is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience, and multi-actor systems. We want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural, and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy, and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic, and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast. We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Three episodes ago, Professor Faranak Miraftab talked to us about the need to decolonize our minds and seek for the just city that is life-giving rather than profit-making. In the following episode, Professor Mona Fawaz from the American University in Beirut told us about informality as an insurgent practice and reflected on the role of the state, leading us to important questions of rights and inclusion. Last week, 
Professor Mariana Fix from the University of Sao Paulo talked to us about financialization of urban space and urban social movements in Brazil. Today, we have Professor Romola Sanyal from the London School of Economics, who will talk about migration and diversity in the city. Professor Sanyal's research focused on the relationship between forced migration and urbanization. In one strand of her research, she looks at how refugees and other forced migrants become city makers through building and inhabiting urban spaces. This work has been conducted in India and Lebanon through the study of Palestinian refugee camps in Beirut and partitioned refugee colonies in Calcutta. Here, she explores how the act of building itself was a form of politics and how it challenged efforts by humanitarian organizations and host governments to marginalize and depoliticize refugees. She continues this work by studying how refugees come to inhabit and make homes whilst being displaced and living in legally precarious circumstances. A second strand of this work looks at the geopolitics of humanitarian knowledge production. Without further ado, let's listen to Professor Romola Sanyal. everybody for inviting me to this really interesting set of workshops. Um, it's a privilege to um, be speaking quite broadly about questions around migration um, and, and diversity. Um, I will note that there's, there are a lot of different ways in which these issues are approached. So there are scholars who discuss questions around migration um, using ideas of conviviality, super diversity around questions of urban citizenship, right to the city and so on. Um, my take on the subject is a little bit different. Um, and I use the idea of displacement as a lens to study urbanization. So my work has for nearly two decades now focused on displaced populations in urban areas. Um, particularly in the Global South. So I've worked in the Middle East, in Lebanon, and in South Asia, in India. Um, Roberta thought that this would be a good fit um, for this particular theme. I hope he's right. Um, and so my talk today is entitled Invisible City Makers, Making Cities, for, uh, Cities Just for Forced Migrants. So in this talk, I hope to do three things. Highlight the ways in which displaced populations recraft cities but remain invisible or hidden. Bring them into conversation with irregular migrants and end with thinking about what that means for questions of justice for them. So I'm going to start with a somewhat cliched um, line, which many people who work on displacement tend to um, use quite regularly, which is to highlight the numbers of people who are displaced globally as of today. So there are currently over 80 million people who are considered persons of concern um, by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or the UNHCR. Um, and this is the UN body that is tasked with protecting refugees, um, forcibly displaced communities, um, and so on. Um, a number of different people fall under their mandate. 
refugees, internally displaced people, asylum seekers, stateless populations, returnees. There's a longer history of protecting displaced people, which I will not get into at this point, but I will just note here that the current humanitarian and human rights system that we have in place today only came about in the post-World War II period, though its roots run further back in the interwar period and the foundational values run even further back into antiquity. And again, there's some very interesting work that's been done on that as well. But in this post-war framework of protection, there's been an increasing push towards putting displaced people in designated areas, specifically in camps. And this is particularly true for uh, refugees who are people who've crossed international borders in search of protection. Displacement has also increasingly shifted from Europe, from where much of the framework had been derived, to the global south. Um, and the camp itself has become a geography that is associated with the global south, although there are several scholars who note that the camp model is making its way back to Europe again today. However, despite this push for encampment as a solution to the problem of hosting displaced people, particularly for protracted periods of time, many displaced people, and one could even argue um, most displaced people, have not historically um, lived in camps and definitely do not live in camps at the moment. They mostly live in non-camp settings and particularly in cities. They just have not been registered um, recognized or counted. Now, there are political reasons for this, um, which again, I will not get into for the, for the interests of time. Um, but um, the United Nations, the UNHCR has long bowed to the pressure um, exerted by host governments and pushed for an encampment agenda. So it's only been since 2009 that UNHCR changed its policy to recognize urban refugees and extend protection to them. And they now, and since then, they've acknowledged that more than half the world's displaced live in cities, and that number has only grown since. So I think there's about 60 plus percent of people who are displaced to live in, in urban areas. So I'm going to complicate this, this um, background a little bit more. So as I had mentioned earlier, that displacement itself occurs at a mass scale. So I had mentioned 80 million people at the start. And most of that is occur occurs and is managed within the global south. So while the international legal framework, particularly refugee law, centers on the individual asylum seeker, in reality, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are displaced as a result of conflict and violence. These people then either come to camps or into cities. And the scale of displacement can be overwhelming for local communities, especially in poorer countries with limited resources, which host the vast majority of displaced people. And again, we've seen this in, in many instances. So in Lebanon, for example, there are entire municipalities um, in certain parts of the country that have more displaced Syrians than they do um, the local communities. Where there are displaced people who are living outside camps, this can then lead to tensions and conflicts between different groups of people over scarce resources, employment, and so on. There's also another important issue to note, which is that which is an increase in protracted refugee crisis. So in other words, displacement is not resolved within months, but rather go on for years and even decades. 
again, here, I want to point out that the legal framework and the aid framework um, that underpins uh, much of the, the humanitarian operations today um, operates with an assumption that displacement is a temporary phenomenon that will be resolved quite soon. However, as geopolitical issues around conflict, protection, and support of displaced people become more securitized and complex, the years people remain displaced become increasingly longer. So this then exacerbates the tensions, again, between host communities and displaced communities, because whatever hospitality may be extended at the onset of crises often changes or disappears as that displacement or exile becomes more extended and host communities who again are extremely deprived themselves in many cases, feel quite strained at hosting large numbers of people. So it's against this sort of complex and evolving backdrop that I place questions of invisibility, planning and justice in this talk. Now, as an urban geographer and planner, I've long been interested in the ways in which cities come to be shaped through displacement and this is where I situate my arguments. So I want to sort of shift away from the discussion of forced migrants as being victims of displacement, which is generally how they are presented within the literature, to think more carefully about how they shape their lives while being displaced and how through that they come to reshape cities. So I want to ask, why should displacement be seen as a planning justice issue? What are the relationships between the urban poor and the displaced? How do we create cities that are attentive to the complex intertwining of the two? And ultimately, I want us to think about for whom do we plan cities and who disappears from sight and how? And hopefully I'll be able to touch some of these points by, through this talk. So to anchor this argument, I turn to the literature on urban refugees. Now there is a burgeoning literature on this topic, on the urbanization of forced migrants. This work highlights the ways in which forced migrants in the face of decades of institutional erasure have crafted lives for themselves in cities, often informally. This is particularly the case in the global South where again, the vast majority of refugees and other displaced people are located. The ways in which displaced people live in cities are highly contingent on a number of issues, including ethnic, local, regional, and national politics. Many cities which have witnessed significant demographic shifts due to mass arrivals and departures of people have been fundamentally, physically, and politically been reshaped. So for example, after the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947, there were approximately 15 million people who were displaced. This was one of the largest displacements in modern history. Many refugees went into cities like Karachi and Lahore in Pakistan, New Delhi and Calcutta in India. Here, the sheer scale of displacement and the nature of partition itself meant that people who were going to largely, that those people who were displaced were largely going to settle down in their new countries. They were not going to go back. As newly independent countries, both India and Pakistan lacked the infrastructural, financial, and bureaucratic means to address the issue in meaningful ways. Further, states like India also adopted rather different policies for different sets of displaced people. So scholars have pointed out how there was more support that was extended for refugees coming from Western Pakistan or the Punjab rather than East Pakistan, which later became Bangladesh. 
refugees also poured, so the, the people who came, many of them came into cities like New Delhi and Calcutta, often in the thousands per day, settling into abandoned properties and um, in the peripheries of cities and expanding the size of these urban areas considerably as well as their density. So in Calcutta, where I had done uh, a significant part of my PhD research, um, I had been doing work on the refugee colonies uh, that had been set up in the post-partition period. Um, and in here, the middle-class Hindu refugees occupied and squatted on land on the fringes of the city, often in defiance of local legislation that upheld private property rights and set about developing hundreds of refugee colonies. They built their houses out of makeshift material like bamboo and tin. They dug ponds, cleared fields, built schools and markets. So the image that I, I share with you here is of one of the schools that they uh, built for themselves. This is a, a girl's school, as you can see. Um, many of the schools in, in Calcutta until recently were um, segregated by gender. Um, but one of the things that's quite interesting also in for, uh, is, is to, to study the image itself um, and the materiality of that particular school, the, the tiled roof, the, the bamboo um, uh, work that, uh, that makes up the walls and so on of the school, um, points to the sort of precarious uh, nature of the, of the structure of the, of the building itself. So they did a lot of the, the sort of uh, construction of these colonies um, on their own um, and, and sometimes through their own labor and, and through the labor of others that they were able to um, hire. They also displaced people themselves, often landlords who owned properties in these areas and or local Muslims who lived and worked here. They also demanded land rights by carrying out political protests, pressuring civil servants and the like. In many cases, they succeeded and eventually these colonies became middle-class areas. Now there are class and caste elements to this process and there are many other scholars who have worked on the context of Calcutta who've highlighted precisely the upper caste particularly nature and the middle-class nature of these squats. Um, but as I've pointed out elsewhere, that it is still fascinating how middle class um, who were once considered the middle classes were reduced to being the urban poor and engaged in practices that we associate more with subaltern um, practices. So namely squatting and incremental building to claim rights to the city. They are undoubtedly city makers as they have helped to shape the physical and political contours of the city. But in the case of the Indian subcontinent, um, this is indeed quite unique and wrought out of a particular moment of partition where being a refugee was politically and communally charged. And in fact, one of the things that, that um, partition scholars often talk about is how limited that particular um, uh, temporal moment was, um, that, very few, that only a few years later, the dynamics of that entire situation changed fundamentally. But this was a temporal space that enabled certain kinds of practices to emerge and flourish for a select group of people. And as I mentioned, this was quite limited. For years, even these privileged refugees occupied a marginalized space in urban society. However, these possibilities were not available to those who came later. And indeed, this episode of acquiring land and rights is also somewhat of an anomaly within a global history of urban refugees. For example, at approximately the same time, 
hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced to Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, amongst other places due to the creation of the State of Israel. In each of these countries, they were treated differently. So in Lebanon, although they came in large numbers, they were mostly put in camps and under tight surveillance. Some of you may be familiar with this image here. Um, this, is, this has graced the cover of different books and, and pamphlets and things. This is an image of Nahr al-Barid, which is in uh, northern Lebanon. Um, although they achieved a degree of autonomy when the PLO arrived in the country in 1967, the Lebanese civil war, which erupted in the country, once again set back their rights. Today, Palestinians continue to face significant discrimination in the country, being denied the right to work in a range of professions, denied the right to own or inherit property, and being compelled to live in overcrowded camps. Now, although the conditions of displaced people differ from one place to another, what is evident is that they largely lack rights and they're not considered in urban policymaking. In many countries, particularly ones that have not signed up to the Refugee Convention, where there are no national refugee laws, or which do not consider themselves countries of asylum, there are no protections for refugees and they are considered illegal immigrants. They may therefore be subject to detention and deportation and are particularly unwelcome outside camps and in urban areas. This has significant implications for their well-being. So it affects how they're able to access housing, employment, education, health, and other crucial goods and services. Now, this is also true for historical cases of India and Lebanon that I've just talked about but also for contemporary situations and worse now. In Thailand, for example, there are thousands of refugees and they come from different communities, Rohingya, Vietnamese, Pakistani, so on, who are considered illegal migrants, are regularly harassed in urban areas, are subject to extortion, arrest, and detention. Because of their legal status, they're forced to work in informal jobs and have precarious access to housing and healthcare. In Lebanon too, most of the nearly one and a half million Syrian refugees lack legal rights in the country and are considered illegal. This means they're unable to access formal jobs or secure housing, which compounds their high levels of employment, unemployment and poverty. And COVID has only exacerbated these dire circumstances. Yet these displaced people continue to provide labor that make cities function in informal, clandestine, and often precarious ways. They sell produce and other goods, they provide cleaning services, they pack and carry goods, work in construction, and often for wages that are far below that which is paid to other workers because of their ambiguous legal status. Um, I have, in, in when I had been working in, in Lebanon, in the Palestinian camps, for example, um, I was once told by one of the people who I was interviewing um, that even though they had helped build the city of Beirut um, and Shatila, where I'd been doing the fieldwork, is now part of the suburbs of the city, um, they are not really allowed to occupy that city or not allowed to live there like everybody else because they're not, they're not, uh, they can't afford it, firstly, but also because they're not allowed to sort of um, purchase property or live in meaningful ways outside of the camp space. Displaced people also, in many cases, um, as I mentioned earlier, face outright hostility and are subject to violence, curfews, and scapegoating by local communities. Now, humanitarian organizations are meant to extend protection to displaced people, but doing so in cities can be difficult. 
So Caroline Quijado and Lauren Landau talk about how local governments and planners do not prioritize displaced people. And generally, it works against them to be inclusive of them. They also note how it might be politically problematic for humanitarian organizations to provide urgent services to displaced people in visible ways and suggest instead that they should engage in what they call stealth humanitarianism. In other words, they argue humanitarians should attempt smaller, nimbler, less conspicuous methods to extend protection to displaced people. This requires them to become locally literate and knowledgeable and includes incentivizing local governments to include refugees as part of their broad target meeting agendas. Now, I broadly agree with them because um, if, if one has to be pragmatic, these are pragmatic solutions to issues that, that is, exist today. But what I will argue is that while such efforts can achieve reasonable outcomes on a smaller scale, they do not produce a paradigm shift or justice at a broader scale. In other words, protection is extended bureaucratically, but this can be highly contingent on political shifts. And ultimately, it does not change the hostility of host communities to displaced people. Thus, while displaced people actively participate in city making, transforming spaces through their presence and labor, they continue to either be rendered invisible and ignored or are only partially included within host societies. Now, while I have briefly outlined the ways in which displaced people transform cities politically, spatially, and socially, and how they are erased from urban policymaking, what I wish to highlight here are the parallels between the experiences of forced migrants and irregular and, and what the media and many politicians refer to as illegal migrants. Both by virtue of their legal status occupy a precarious and violent space in urban societies. These undesirables as Michel Agier discusses them form the lumpen proletariat. Perhaps what separates them from each other is an international protection regime. So refugee law that idealizes certain kinds of violence and persecution, creates labels around it and extends protection. Thus, as a recognized refugee, you may be able to avoid deportation. And again, I can talk about why that's the case under refugee law or international law. But as an irregular or illegal migrant, you don't because you're seen, seen to be here out of choice, not out of compulsion. And there's a very problematic distinction between the two, which again, migration scholars have long pointed out. So in this way, we create superficial, problematic hierarchies amongst the most oppressed people in the world. Now I want to draw in planning into this discussion and ask where is it when we consider illegality and extra legality? Much of the literature on urban planning and policymaking, where it engages with the question of urban poverty, assumes the legality of the urban poor. It doesn't reflect on the migrant status of those living in informal settlements their permanent temporality and the ever-present deportability of people. Such questions are also sticky as they have to contend with the messy politics, contingent hospitality, and perhaps hostility of local communities, again, often severely deprived, marginalized, and subject to dis displacement and eviction themselves. Furthermore, there's another question to be asked within this, this um, sort of framework of planning, which is how do you plan for populations that are highly transient, 
who are always expected to go back and never make home. So in the northern Lebanese city of Tripoli, humanitarian NGOs attempted to create solidarity and support through neighborhood level interventions, what they called uh, the neighborhood approach. The hope being that through these local small scale upgrades and improvements, both Syrian and Lebanese communities can be supported. But the involvement of Syrian families can be highly controversial and fleeting as they frequently move in search of work and affordable housing and to avoid being caught by local authorities for being illegal. But the implications of such experiments can be profound for urban environments and for planning, because ultimately, what is now financing the transformation of informal poor neighborhoods is humanitarian finance, which seems to operate separately from the realms of planning and are certainly not subject to the same kinds of scrutiny by planners. Indeed, while such experiments are taking place across different crises-affected contexts, and there are there's a compendium of case studies um, where of uh, of these experiments that have been taking place around different parts of the world, these are widely discussed in humanitarian literature, but they rarely enter the annals of planning studies. We may well find that as humanitarian crises and its global aid infrastructure fundamentally reshape cities and urbanism, particularly in the global South, planning will be late to catch up to this reality. So in conclusion, I wanna simply just uh, raise a couple of things. So obviously we are entering a world where in fact crises are becoming more ubiquitous and the scale and frequency of displacement is also becoming more pronounced. So how do we plan for this world moving beyond infrastructure to think about mass displacement and centering people? What role can architecture and planning play in creating just cities for those who are forced to migrate for episodic or structural reasons? Now, usually because I'm an urban geographer and, a, and, and, a, and an academic, I just sort of do a critique and walk away. But this time I thought I would actually try to do something a little bit more concrete and offer some, some thoughts from my end. Um, so I'm gonna suggest three ways forward. The first is to recognize and celebrate the migrant histories of cities. It is imperative that we educate ourselves and others that all cities have been forged through migration, clandestine or otherwise. This work is political and urgent to build much needed solidarity and to lay the groundwork for an epistemic shift in thinking amongst the public and the so-called experts of the importance of migrants, especially those who are extra-legal in transforming cities. In doing so, we may be able to shift the rhetoric from small bureaucratic changes to creating the foundations for more inclusive cities. The second is to work together with those who inhabit the margins of society to create cities, not make cities in which they happen to exist. In other words, we plan and build with people, not for them and not without them. This requires us to recognize the importance of other life worlds, other kinds of expert knowledge and exercise a level of humility. Decolonizing practice means that we not only learn and gain skills in our universities, but also recognize that skills and knowledge come in various ways and from various corners of the world. And it's, not, and it's only through collective practice that we can create something that is inclusive and just. And finally, a commitment to justice also requires us to open up dialogues with other parts of the world as equals. Too often, 
I have heard comments, and these are often disparaging, about how X country is unique because of Y reasons. So it's usually people in a particular country saying, well, my country is special because this is how our politics work. And I want to say that every country is unique in how it experiences displacement and urbanization. But we need to move beyond these narrow, dismissive, and um, arguments that are often verging on xenophobic and racist attitudes and speak to each other across regions as equals. Because specificities will always be there and are always important, but there are also global issues and structures of oppression that can only be um, tackled through global dialogues, through transnational conversations, and through global solidarity. This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez, music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira, sound edition by Hugo Lopez, The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of Design for Values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education, outreach and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time!